Hi everyone, welcome back to Hitchcock University where you learn filmmaking from the masters. My name is Taylor Bickle. Last class session we talked about witness from witness for the prosecution and this class session we're going to talk about Some Like It Hot. If you haven't seen Some Like It Hot, which I don't even know why you're listening at this point. Um, Some Like It Hot is the story of two struggling male musicians who witness a mob killing and have to go on the run disguising themselves as as women or well, more specifically female musicians. So, wow, there's just so much to talk about here. Um, this film reunites Billy Wilder and Marilyn Monroe. And we kind of alluded to it last time about how hard it was to work with Marilyn. But this film takes the cake, no doubt. <laughs> Let me read you a part from, from, uh, from Billy's biography, Nobody's Perfect. He's talking about the sugarcane role that Marilyn Monroe plays. He says, she was the weakest part and also the most important I knew I had to get a very strong actress to play Sugar, a real star, and that was a big problem. She had to bring something with her that we could not just not convey on paper. I considered Mitzi Gaynor, who had just come off South Pacific. Then I got this letter from Marilyn Monroe, telling me how much she had enjoyed working on Seven Year Itch, and how she hoped we could work together again. Of course, she would be the perfect Sugar. I sent her an outline in the script. I didn't send her much, though, because I think it's bad to tell the actors, I'm writing this for you, and only you can play it. They don't like that. I just say... I know you can interpret this part because you can play anything. They love that. I also don't want I also didn't want Miss Monroe to think she was being typecast. She wanted to believe she was an actress, not just a star, a personality. Nobody could play her the way she could. I wanted her to feel good, but not so good she would be impossible during the filming. There was always a delicate balance which which had to be maintained in handling her. You did the best you could, and the thing you knew was you would fail. You would tip the balance wrong and then you would pick up the pieces. Not of her but of you. Billy, after working with Marilyn, had a sense of how to handle Marilyn. And that's really, that's, I, that, that's a big bulk of what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about working with actors, and I'm going to use Marilyn Monroe as a very specific example because she was so difficult. But there's a reason he had to have Marilyn Monroe, and he talks about it right here. He gives it away. He says she had to bring something with her that we could not just convey on paper. So let's go on. In the WGA series, The Writer Speaks, Billy gives us an example of working with Marilyn. He says, we went back to, this is, this is them watching the dailies or the rushes. Back in the day when you shot film, you would, you would send your film to the lab, have it very quickly developed, have the negatives very quickly developed into something called rushes or the dailies that then the next day you could watch and see how things were going, see if there were any problems, see if there was anything you need to reshoot, see if something wasn't working the way you'd hoped it would, etc. So he says, we went to the projection, the projection room with Marilyn and she looked and she said, oh my God, this is in black and white. This is not in color. I only make color pictures. Then I had to invent and this was much tougher than finding the plot. I said, we were making tests in color, but you know the boys, when they dress as girls, their beard is coming through, blah, 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 blah. I understand, she said. I said, oh, thank you. <laughs> Billy had to had to completely invent a reason why he hadn't shot this movie in color because Marilyn only ever did color pictures and she, she knew or at least thought that she looked best in color and not in black and white, and she's probably right about that. The fact of the matter is Billy didn't like shooting in color. And especially because this was a 1920s period piece about the Prohibition era, there was no reason to shoot it in color. It, it made sense to shoot it in black and white. So Billy had to come up with this completely outrageous idea that for some reason the guys didn't look right in color, but they looked right in black and white, and then that was enough for, for Marilyn, you know? But this idea of having to kind of 
hold her hand through this process, kind of coddle her, give her reasons, even if they were wrong reasons about why he had made the decisions he made so that he could remain in control of the film and not let Marilyn run away with it. Now, here's the thing, though. I'm going to give you this story in, in stark contrast to, to a much longer story. Because I want you to understand that working with Marilyn Monroe was not all bad. And this is part of the reason that, as Billy says repeatedly, he kind of lost his mind and cast her again. This comes from the documentary series, Billy, How Did You Do It? He said, we had a scene on the beach with Tony Curtis pretending to be a member of the Shell family. One and a half to two pages of dialogue in the open air. There was an airbase, a Navy station, and every 10 minutes a jet flew over. I told myself it would take about four days. I tried to film... I tried to film between takeoffs. Second take, everything was there. Every sentence of two pages, not a letter, not a comma left out. We finished in 18 minutes. I had planned for three days of shooting. Marilyn Monroe nailed the scene on the second take. Just totally nailed it, and it was perfect. It was letter perfect. It was word perfect. It was punctuation perfect. 18 minutes, they're done. Scheduled for three days. <laughs> because they knew it was going to be such a hassle. And then Marilyn Monroe just because she was feeling good that day, I guess, just knocked it out of the park. And it was great. And they were done. And they moved on. Now, that's in stark contrast to this story. And this is maybe one of the more famous stories. This is a story that Billy tells quite a bit. Um, I pulled this this telling of the story because it was the most clear um, from the Making of documentary um, that is probably on everybody's Blu-ray, DVD or Blu-ray of this film. But um, I know for sure it's on the Criterion Collection one because that's the one that I have. He says, that scene where she is to come into the room, the boys were still in women's clothes, she still thinks they're girls, and she is to enter and she is to say, where's that bourbon? She knows that the guys have bourbon, and this is, this is prohibition time, and she is so disappointed in what is happening in her private life that she needs a slug of that booze. And so she is to knock on the door. Who is it? And she is to say, outside, at the door, it's me, sugar. She comes in and she says, where's that bourbon? That was it. And she had a mental block. She just could not say that line. And after 16, and after take 16, she knocks. Who is it? Sugar, it's me. No, 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 no. Cut. And now she would burst into tears. Now we have to remake the makeup, right? We have to redo it because there's the mascara. And after take like 53, I took her to the side and I say, Marilyn, please don't worry. And she would look at me and say, worry about what? Then we said, look, I, I tell you what, I tell you what you do. We put on the door outside we're going to write in big letters it says knock knock then who is it and you say and it's me sugar just read it and finally she comes into the room you know because she had finished what she <laughs> she actually finally got the line right and i said now you know there's a there's a kind of piece of furniture with a lot of drawers and it's the bourbon is in one of those drawers whichever drawer you open it will be lined with a piece of paper that says where is that bourbon whichever you open well, there were another 30 takes because she went to the wrong piece of furniture. I would have printed anything except maybe where's that Dr. Pepper. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up real quick because there's another telling of that story that has an ending that I really want to get to. Sorry, I don't have it. I thought I did. I guess I took this story down so much I figured I had it. There's, there's another telling of that story that Billy gives where he says as she's opening the drawers and can't get the line out where's that where's that bourbon billy went up to her and said what what's what's wrong it's written right there it, you know just read it and she said well i don't want to read it cuz i don't want to forget how i want to play it and it was things like this 
that Billy Billy went to Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis, the two the the two leading men of this, and said, "You guys have to be perfect every single take because no matter because the first time I get something printable out of Maryland, no matter what, we're moving on. There is no other take two for you guys. You guys have to be dead on every single every single performance." There's a there there was another time, and this comes from um this comes from a little featurette on on at least my Blu-ray, the Criterion one, called Memories from the Sweet Sues, where there's there's four women who uh, were actresses who played roles in the in in the women's band. And um, and one of them tells a story that one day Marilyn was supposed to do a big musical number, but she wouldn't come out of her dressing room. So Billy came to her and said, I'm gonna put you on the stage, I'm gonna give you the microphone, and I'm gonna play the play the playback of the song and you sing it. Because what Billy knew was once Marilyn heard someone else doing her song, Marilyn would come out and do the scene. And according to, to this actress, when she did, she was phenomenal. And that's the thing about Marilyn. This is why she's such a lasting icon, is she... It, well, actually, hold on. I'm going to say that, because we're going to get there. There's another story here. This one is one that Tony Curtis tells um, in an interview that Leonard Malton did with him. Um, Tony Tony Curtis says that that um, Marilyn always had her acting coach with her, Paula Strasberg, um, I believe the wife of uh, Lee Strasberg, um, one of the great, um, I mean, one of the great um, um, acting teachers of all time, you know, really developed the method, the method for of method acting. Um, but Tony says that after a take, Marilyn would look to Paula, not to Billy to see if the performance was right. And that totally ruins everything because now all of a sudden it looks like Billy doesn't have control of the movie that he's making, much less doesn't have control of his star. And once Billy realized what she was doing, <laughs> right after a take, like right after a take, he just looked and said, how was that for you, Paula? And that pretty quickly demolished that dynamic that was going on on set. And, and Billy was able to get control back over his movie. Now here's the thing, and this is what Billy knew. This comes from Nobody's Perfect. He said, if I wanted someone to be on time, to know the length perfectly, I've got an old aunt in Vienna who's going to be there at five in the morning and never miss a word. But who wants to see her? He kind of fleshes that idea out in um, in a documentary, again, from the disc features, uh, The Legacy of Some Like It Hot. It says, believe me, I have known actors and actresses that can come up with six pages of dialogue absolutely flawless. Or Christ, you go to a French restaurant here in L.A., you know, and this guy comes up and recites 14 dishes in French and in English. Never misses a vegetable, nothing. The sauces are perfect. My God, why don't I have actors like this who never blow a line? But that does not matter. It is of no importance. Nobody cares. What matters is what's on the screen. Do we feel for her? Are we involved in her fate? Do we wish her well? Do we want her dead? She, Marilyn was absolutely totally unique and there's never been anybody like her because there because there were also days I should mention where she would go where she went through entire scenes without blowing a line I always thought that this girl had a great great sense of dialogue she knew where the laughs were and she did it with a great deal of elegance and that's what Billy understood doesn't matter how hard how hard you have to fight with her on the day what matters is is the end result. What matters is what you got. Because all those bad takes are going to get cut and no one's ever going to see them. What does matter is what stays, what, what is left after everything's cut away. He says this um, in Billy, How Did You Do It? He says, if she gets the line out, perfect, 
absolutely perfect in the timing, the sound of her voice. She knew where the joke was. She was born with that kind of gift. You can have 50 actresses. They may have been all quite good. Some of them even more, not efficient, but let us say technicians. But nobody would have been better than her. And that's what Billy understood. And that meant that Billy had to learn how to direct her. Okay? This is what Billy says about directing. This, uh, I've, I've got two quotes here. The first one here comes from Conversations with Billy Wilder. He says, sometimes you have to be a bastard to an actor because the person likes to be treated like a bastard. You learn that very quickly. So you have a different pattern of behavior from one actor to another to an actress in the same piece. What Billy understood was everybody's different, and that includes actors. And that meant that you had to treat every actor differently. Some of them wanted to be treated certain ways, and so you had to do that. And some of them didn't want to be treated ways in that same way, and you needed to steer around that. This is true directing of talent. This is real directing right here. The ability to, to, to understand how somebody works. You know, it's like he said back up at the top. He said, um, he said there was always a delicate balance which had to be maintained in handling her. You did the best you could. And the thing you knew was that you were going to fail. You could tip the balance wrong, and then you pick up the pieces, not of her, but of you. He goes on to say um, in Portrait of a 60% Perfect Man, he says, it's very, very difficult to make a set rule, you know, to treat every actor the same way. No, it's like a psychiatrist having various patients of different illnesses on the couch, and you have to be all kinds of things, not, so, not just a psychiatrist to them. You have to be a masochist. You have to be an SS man. You have to be a father, confessor, priest. You have to cuddle them. You have to be sweet to them. You have to be severe with them. It just depends, you know. They're all, thank God, they're all human beings, but different problems. And that's what Billy understood. You can't treat every actor the same way. You have to meet them where they are in order to get the best out of them. Because like with Marilyn, as we all know, it pays off. You know, even if it takes 80 takes, that 80th take is going to be perfect. And that's all that matters is the finished product, not the pain you have to go through to get it there. Now, he says something interesting here about Marilyn. He says, he says, let me repeat this. He says, I always thought that this girl had a great, great sense of dialogue. She knew where the laughs were. Now, let's talk about knowing where the laughs are because Billy Wilder is probably one of the greatest comedy directors of all time. In fact, this film, Some Like It Hot, was voted by the American Film Institute as the greatest comedy of all time. How do you do that? Well, what Billy understood in part was comic timing. This uh, comes right out of Conversations with Billy Wilder, and I'm going to read it right from the book. Sorry, as I, as I flip through here. Okay. Let me, Billy's going to set the scene, but he's setting the scene for people who've seen the movie. Let me, let me try to set the scene for you. So you have these two musicians dressing, uh, disguising themselves as women, and they are now in like Miami or, or somewhere in the South of Florida. And um, one of them is seducing Marilyn Monroe, and the other one is being hit on and, and, and attempting to seduce him. Um, there's, there's a millionaire who's hitting on him. Um, the other the the character that Jack Lemon plays, and so after a night of seducing Marilyn, Tony Curtis and Marilyn Monroe have been together. Jack Lemon got stuck with his millionaire <laughs> all night long, um, dancing the tango. Okay, so Billy says, like for instance, one of the big laughs in Some Like It Hot. There was a scene that played about three or four minutes. That's very long. 
That was the scene where Mr. Tony Curtis climbs climbs up the back of the hotel, goes in goes in the room, and there is Jack Lemmon with the maracas. He's still singing the tune from the evening from the tango before, and the maracas were very important. They were very important because I could time the jokes there. In other words, I say something, you say something. Now I needed some kind of an action that helped time the joke. For instance, Tony Curtis comes up and he says, "Well, what's new here?" And Lemon says, "Well, you well you'll be surprised. A little news here. I'm engaged." And then he goes, "La da 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 bum, 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 as he's shaking the maracas. Now, now I knew when I cut back. I knew how long the laugh was going to be. Then I put in the other straight line. Then comes another joke. But I timed it so that not one straight line is lost because sometimes you have a straight line and the straight line gets the laugh. So now you're really dead because they don't because they will not hear the payoff. They laughed over the straight line and then they hear the top of the next joke already without hearing the preparation. The rhythm was off. You have to be very, very careful. That was the whole secret of the Marx Brothers. They They tried it out in the theater first. There you can get... There you can time it. Let's wait until the laugh, subsi- laugh subsides. You do anything. You light a cigarette. You do anything as you wait for the laughs to die down. Then you come in with the next joke. How are you going to do it? How are you going to do it in films? So what Thalberg thought of, he was a very inventive man. He had, th- he had three routines from, let's say, A Day in the Races or A Night at the Opera. He took the three routines, gave it to the guys, sent them on tour, on a tour of live va- vaudeville acts. Thalberg knew that the difficulty with the Marx Brothers was they started with a joke. Then there's a big laugh, then comes another straight line. So what are we going to do in case there is no laugh? Or if the ja- or if the laugh is twice as long as we thought, they're going to be stepping on the feed line, which would ruin the next joke. So he took the Marx Brothers and he sent them all around America into vaudeville places. And he tested the strength of the laughs. Was the joke a 10? Was it a 3? Or what? In about 20 theaters, they tried it out. Then they knew what they had. I stole that, the method of timing the laughs. Okay, so like, for example, I've been watching Rick and Morty with with my roommates, and sometimes we laugh right through two or three jokes because we're just dying, right? Which means that we're missing all that. Well, Billy Billy knew that, especially for an audience watching this in a movie theater, you can't pause it, you can't rewind. You have to, they, they have to get it there in that moment, you know, because there was no home video in 1959. You know, <laughs> you had to get it right in the theater. So Billy developed methods of timing these jokes out. And, and, and so he had hours, practically, of footage of, of uh, Jack Lemmon, you know, shaking these maracas and, and, and singing this and, and kind of not singing, but, you know, kind of doing the tune from the night before. And so what he figured out is, is, is by giving Jack Lemmon that business, he could then time, time those laughs. He reiterates in conversations with Billy Wilder, he says, as long as the actors are not in motion, you can prolong or shorten the joke. But it's a very smart idea not to put your actor in a long shot for everything. You have to be able to cut. But God help you if you leave a joke there because you thought it was a tremendous laugh. But in the next theater, suddenly it's a very short laugh because there were only a few hundred people there. I figured that out, how you do it. It's just timing and editing. But that's how you do it, you know. Like he said, you know, the Marx Brothers, you, you have them light a cigarette. You know, you, you give them some kind of business to let the audience go through it because they're laughing so hard. They're not really paying attention to what the actors are doing at that point. You know, they, they could be doing almost anything as long as it fits in the scene. And then and then as the laughter subsides, then you can come back with, with the next, you know, setup and punchline, you know. So that's uh, – that's the, those are Billy's thoughts on comedic timing. Um Comedy's hard. 
I mean, let's just talk. Let's just face it. Comedy's hard to do. One of the other things, though, that Billy figured out, not just for comedy, but even for drama, is the power of omission. I'm going to let Billy explain it. This is from Nobody's Perfect. He says, we have Tony Curtis phoning. So, so this is the moment where Tony Curtis and Jack Lemmon decide that um, because the gangsters have seen them, they need, they need some way to hide so that no one will find them. So they decide to join this girls' band. So... Here we go. We have Tony Curtis phoning his agent, but disguising his voice like a woman so they can get the job in the girls' orchestra. Cut. Next, from the rear, we see two women, wa- two women walking down a railroad pra- platform, but their legs are hairy and they are having trouble with the high heels, especially Lennon. No need to show how it happened. Just cut. We don't see the guys becoming girls. That would be boring and waste time in filming. If we involve ourselves in how did they get the dresses, then it's 15 minutes of boredom and it's less convincing than the audience's imagination. I did not invent this technique. It was Laurel and Hardy. In one of their silent two-reelers, they get rich during Prohibition making booze in the bathtub. Laurel gets scared and says, this is very dangerous, but, Har- but Hardy says it's perfectly safe. Cut. They are now both behind bars and striped suits. They didn't need any scenes getting caught and being sentenced. Just cut from the idea to the reality, and it worked. This is also something that, that Billy credits um, Lubitsch with. Um, this this comes from Billy Wilder interviews, uh, the interview, um, you used to be big, I am big, it's the pictures that got small. He says, I learned from Lubitsch that the scene between the two lovers the next morning tells you much more about their sexual behavior than actually showing them have sex and pushes the story forward. This is one of the things that so many so many writers and filmmakers talk about is in film, you only have an hour and a half, two hours to tell a story. you know, And so you have to keep moving forward. And one of the best ways you can do that is just like he says, cut from, cut from the idea to the reality. Just, just, just jump over it. We don't always need every every detail. Sometimes it's much more effective to just skip ahead, just get to where it gets interesting again, and don't don't bore the audience with all these explanations and all this and all that. You know who cares? Especially with something like this, where he talks about you have these two guys who are men. In one in one frame, and then we cut to them in high heels and dresses, and it's far funnier because now the audience gets to imagine, oh my gosh, how did they get those dresses? Who did their makeup? You know, all these kinds of things. The audience's imagination is going to be far more interesting, and you can push the story forward. You know, um, or, or 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 the scene the next day between two lovers tells you much more about what happened last night than actually showing it to the audience. Use that audience imagination to your benefit. All right. That's all I've got for Some Like It Hot. Thank you so much for listening to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Next class session, we're going to do The Apartment, uh, my favorite Billy Wilder film, one of my favorite films of all time. Um, and then we're going to do One, Two, Three, and then we're going to do Irma Leduce, which is also a personal favorite of mine from Billy Wilder's filmography. Um, but that's all we have uh, in the meantime. Uh, if you'd like to reach out to the podcast, um, you can email us. Um, our email address is HitchcockUniversity at Hitch. Hitchcock University at gmail.com. There's a Hitchcock University Facebook page and, of course, a Twitter page as well, which is uh, at Hitchcock underscore U, the letter U is in university. Um, thank you again so much for listening to Hitchcock University, where you learn filmmaking from the masters. Um, I've been Taylor Bickle, and we will talk to you again in two weeks.